Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, يَسْأَلُونَكَ مَاذَا أُحِلَّ لَهُمْ قُلْ أُحِلَّ لَكُمُ الطَّيِّبَاتِ That's in Surah Al-Ma'idah. There's a number of verses in the Quran that speak about what has been made lawful for us. Before we speak about food in itself, which is generally the default thing that we all speak about, when we gather together, we start speaking about food, whether we're going to go out to eat somewhere or what's on the menu in the invitation or the da'wah or whatever the case is. So, before we get to the discussion of food, let us uh, discuss something else first. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that He's created nearly all living things. All living beings are made of water. Mimma. Allah has created most living things from water. We are, much of, our uh, much of what we're constituted of is water. And generally, one of the greatest acts that uh, are encouraged and in fact actually required in our deen, in our religion, is, is tahara. It is to actually have uh, purity. The Prophet ﷺ said, iman Purity is half of faith. Most of us, we reduce purity, the purity of physical filth on the body, that it needs to be cleansed. And the other filth or the other impurity that we know about is the impurity of the state. When a person is in need of wudu or ghusl, when a person is in a seminally defiled state or has broken their wudu and thus they need to do a wudu before they pray. So going back to the aspect of purity, everything about us when it comes to our faith, it's all about purity. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pure, tayyib, and He wants pure, pure things from us, pure worship from us. He wants us that when we donate something, it must be something that we're not just trying to get rid of. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَن تَنَالُوا الْبِرَّ حَتَّى تُنْفِقُوا مِمَّا تُحِبُّونَ you cannot attain to piety and righteousness until you spend of that which you love. Clearly what we would be loving are things which are more purer to our hearts, which are closer to our hearts. So when it comes with, to anything that we do in the way we behave, there's a concept of pure character, a pure heart. And that's why we have a concept of tazkiyah. This gear refers to purity of the state, purity of the heart, purity of the conduct, the behavior. The Prophet ﷺ spoke about that, that the best of you are those who have the best of character. The best of character are those who have the purest of behavior. Purest of behaviors can only come from the purest of selves and purest of hearts. Because when the heart is sound, as the Prophet ﷺ said, then all the rest of the limbs of the body will also be sound. And if the heart is corrupt, then the rest of the body will be corrupt. So the concept of purity, it literally infuses every aspect of the Muslim's life, both physically, physiologically, spiritually, and in terms of our active deeds and everything else. That's why Allah has told us that He has sent, أَنزَلْنَا مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً تَهُورًا that we've actually caused to descend upon you water which is pure, pure water. 
we've constitute we're constituted of water a major percentage of our bodies are made of water that's our essential quiddity and element allah wants us allah has then given us pure water so that we can bathe with it we can wash with it return ourselves to a purer state the purer state is closer to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's why when you speak to practitioners those who understand the evils of shaitan the evils of jinn they will tell you that remain in a pure state the purer you are the more the less vulnerable we are the more closer we are to allah the further we are away from the shaitan shaitan has less influence on a pure person that's why we're told to stay away from impure places only spend so much time in the toilets that you need to relieve yourself before you enter you say allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubthi wal khaba'ith i seek refuge in allah from the male and female devils from the evil ones so there's a whole concept of purity that's pervading everything and that's why our children should grow up that way to understand that now if we've got purity in everything from what we do from what we're constituted of from what we use to return our body to its clean state and its pure state with water with what allah characterizes as pure water and everything else which is pure allah doesn't accept except what is pure if that is all the case then imagine the one thing by which our bodies actually grow and we're nourished by it which is food if everything else is supposed to be pure then what about the food itself which is probably one of the greatest contributors to our physiological growth not necessarily our spiritual growth but that comes in tandem with what we eat as well so to give you an idea of how difficult that has become i lived in america for about 8 years and i lived in a place called santa barbara which is in southern california but on the northern tip of southern california about 2 hours north of los angeles there were there was only one masjid in my area no halal shops at all so i had to travel about 2 and 1/2 hours to go to los angeles to buy my meats and to buy any other halal now the thing is that los angeles is a massive city it's a massive city it's a very big city most people would have heard of, heard of los angeles and there are several meat shops peppered around the city in different places the difficulty though in getting halal meat truly halal meat genuine halal meat from there was extremely difficult and the reason is that halal meat costs more money especially when there's not as much supply as there could be the the less the supply is that means that there's going to be a markup that's going to be higher because there's more monopoly in that regard that's just a simple rule of business but not only was that 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 was the one thing i mean i'm quite a picky buyer i like to i i like to check where you can get a deal from you know i don't have an issue with doing that i'm not one who just goes in there's a lot of men their wives get them a a list a shopping list they go and they pick up the first product and they come back home and they're like why didn't you get the other one the shop brand well, i just saw that you told me beans so i just got these ones right and then the wives tell them off because they just don't know how to do shop shopping i think i'm quite a savvy shopper but the one thing that i would never ask price in was meat because i couldn't beggars can't be choosers if there was a halal meat store that somebody could could give me guarantee that yes these guys are seriously halal 
I would close my eyes and buy what I had to buy. And I wouldn't ask them the price except what is the total and that's it. So I would go down with the family sometimes every two to three months down to Los Angeles to buy my meat. When I would go down to buy my meat, I would eventually, I started calling, there was a Mufti Salim who was living and teaching in Los Angeles, in close to Orange County. So I used to call him up each time and I say, Mufti Saab, can you tell me where I, can, I should buy my meat from this time? So I remember he used to tell me, go to Jasmine on Sapalvida Avenue or Sapalvida Boulevard or wherever it was. So I would go there, I would buy my meats. After a few months, I've gone back to buy more meat. And I ask him, Molana, where shall I buy my meat from this time? He says, go to Anaheim, you know, go to this other store there. I was like, what happened to the other one? I'm actually in that area. He says, no, I found him mixing. I said, what do you mean? You see, I got to learn the industry. The industry is a cutthroat industry. It's a very deceptive industry. And if you know as much as the people do who understand the industry, it makes it very difficult for you to actually eat from anywhere. Because there is just so much going on. I mean, I don't want to scare you. I'm not doing this to scare you. I'm just telling you the reality. You come to London today and nearly every chicken shop or small takeaway, they will have a halal marker on there. It just says halal. I mean, there's one I walked into. It's not even Muslim owned. Right? It's some Caribbean takeaway, if I remember correctly. And it says halal on there. I was like, what does that mean? It's just a symbol that says that Muslims will come to you and you'll make more money. That's what it means. Right? That's what halal means today in this country. So it used to be very difficult. You know, for us to go out and eat as a family was virtually impossible in America, in, in Los Angeles. Because while there were restaurants and takeaways... There was so much difference of opinion as to what is halal and what is not halal. I, I mean, I swear, there was one invitation I went to, right? There was an Arab brother of ours, he was in Santa Cruz, uh, Northern California. And I went and mashallah, he had all of this nice food that was prepared on the table. And this is what he's telling me, these are his words. He's a sheikh, this is halal, this is zabiha, uh, this is also zabiha, and this is halal, this is halal. I was like... Now you have to, let me introduce you to some terms here. The biha literally means the animal which has been uh, slaughtered properly. The biha, from the What does halal mean? Halal means lawful. I'm assuming that every the biha, if you've done it properly, what they mean by the biha is the one that's been actually cut from the throat, not mechanically slaughtered on a machine. Uh, and, and so on and so on. So it's been hand slaughtered. That's what the biha refers to in that terminology, that conventional terminology. That's what it refers to. What was he trying to tell me when he's saying this is the biha and this is halal? What's the difference? What he's trying to say is that the halal ones that he was pointing out, those were halal according to the broad understanding of halal. The very accommodating, very inclusive understanding of what what many, many, many would maybe just call halal, but it's not the biha. And he knew that I'm probably particular. So he was saying X, Y, and Z. Basically, there are, there are so many fatwas around. Some fatwas say any Christian or Jewish slaughtered meat, it's halal. Some say as long as you say Bismillah before you eat it. You can get it from there, but you have to make sure you say Bismillah before you eat it. Then it's halal. 
There was just so much. Then there's another shop that I, I, I've been into to check it out uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, and I talk about all about America because when I came to England and I saw the yellow stickers and I figured out HMC was around, that was one of the greatest blessings of, for me. Because I no longer had to go and make these inquiries. I just looked at that sticker and I closed my eyes and went and purchased whatever I want. Because I knew now the sin is all on them if it's wrong. Because individuals don't have the ability to go and make all of those investigations. So I remember this one shop that I was at, meat shop. And mashallah, they were the better ones in the sense that they had this massive board on explaining their procedure. They said that we, all our meat is slaughtered, all our chicken, particularly about chicken. Chicken is generally the big issue. All of our chicken is slaughtered by machine on a mechanical process, but we can guarantee that the sheikh reads Bismillah before putting the button on, before putting the switch on in the morning or whenever it is. Right? So that, that was good enough for a lot of other people because they followed that fatwa, but for me that wasn't good enough because I felt that that's not something I want to do. I want it to be hand slaughtered individually with an individual Bismillah, an individual dhikr. It was difficult. I went to buy a yogurt once from the normal, lo- local, local supermarket. And it said kosher gelatin. Now in America, a lot of Muslims go with kosher. Because at least it's better than nothing at all. Because the kosher industry, uh, they're, they're supposed to have similar rights to ours. And in the Quran, there is an allowance to eat from the food of Christians and Jews. But then... For some reason, we called up the company. And the company told us that, yes, this is kosher gelatin, but only according to a certain certifying body of kosher rabbis. What does that mean? This gelatin is from the bones or the skin of pig. It's like, how is that kosher then? Because according to kosher, it's also not supposed to be from pig because they have the same issues that we have with pig. With anything to do with swine. So no, this particular denomination, this group, this sect, this firqa, you know like we have those, right? They, they just consider the flesh of swine to be non-kosher and non-halal. But the bones and skin are fine. So they've got similar programs. That, that I then realized that at that time there were over 23, if I remember correctly, kosher certifying bodies. All the way from the ultra-Orthodox Union, which are the most strictest, right? And uh, going all the way down to these various other kosher parev and all these other different ones. Just like we have various different halal certifying bodies. So that's why after all that difficulty, I, I, you know, today I'm a semi-vegetarian. I wish I was a semi-vegetarian then. But I have recently, in the last few years, we've become semi-vegetarian. And the reason is that that is what I believe is the sunnah. The Prophet ﷺ used to love his meat when he got it. When he got his meat, he ate well. He asked for a shoulder. He asked for another one. He asked for another one. Until the person said, a goat or, you know, only has so many shoulders. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, if you had continued to just hand find one for me or look for one for me and give it to me, you would have continued to do so as a miracle. But since you asked the question now, yes, they only have so many shoulders. 
When he got meat, he ate it well. But he wasn't on the prowl for meat all the time as we are. Our situation is such that the Muslims love their meat. When I mean the Muslims, I can only speak for Asian people for now. Otherwise, Muslims, there are Muslims beyond the Asian community. But they love their meat, but unfortunately they're not very particular about the type of meat that they're choosing. They just look for the cheapest meat. Our meat shops, Allahu Akbar. There's a lot more that could be desired. The type of meat that is distributed in meat shops, even if it's perfectly halal and HMC certified. Because there are grades in meat. There are grades in meat. Grade 1, grade 2, and so on and so forth. That's not my area. I don't want to get into there. I don't want to scare you too much. But it is something that an awareness is important about. Because the way animals are being reared and produced in battery farms and in, in fact factories, farm factories. I had with me in Hajj an individual from Pakistan and I was avoiding the chicken anyway. He had told me that his family in Pakistan have a chicken business, a big chicken farm or whatever it is. But he also was refusing to eat the chicken. It's like, why are you refusing to eat the chicken? He says, I know how they're produced. I know how they're produced. Okay, how are they produced? I'd, re- I'd seen documentaries about that anyway. But I'm not here to scare you about those things. I just want us to be careful. How did we become semi-vegetarian? The Prophet ﷺ used to go for days without eating meat. Forget meat, anything. Dates and water. Otherwise, some barley. That was their diet. Sometimes they would have meat. When he had meat, he enjoyed it. So we're not vegetarians. We're not against eating animals. Don't get anybody wrong in that. This term semi-vegetarian is a problematic term even to start with. For the, pure, you know, for the Puritans of language and so on. But I don't see any other word for it yet. What we started doing was, we said, let us cut down meat. To Let, let us have one, free, one meat-free day a week. Whatever that day is, Monday, Tuesday, whatever, the boring day of the week, whatever that may be, no meat that day. So sisters, women, no meat that day. Alhamdulillah, it moved on to such a degree that now we have meat maybe once or twice. What I mean by meat, I mean chicken, mutton, beef or fish. So it's not like only cutting out red meat. I'm not into my beef anyway, right? Unless we're in Zambia where they've got good beef. Right, the minute steaks and the good stuff. But increase your soups, your vegetables, your lentils, and you will see that you will actually be healthy. You'll feel healthier, I guarantee you. The kind of things that go into the processing of meat, and especially when we're not getting the best cuts of meat to start with, the kind of animals that we're receiving anyway. I'm not sure if I'm doing HMC a favor today or not by discussing this, right? But I think this is important. Our, the way we are made, the way we are, all of this is impacted by what we eat because that is the, probably the single biggest factor in how our bodies are nourished inside. We take the air in, but in terms of the nutrients that we receive, that comes from our food and drink. And that's what our children are brought up on. That's what we were brought up on. That needs to be as pure as possible.
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Baqarah, Ya ayyuhal nas, O people, kulu mimma fil ardi halalan tayyiba. O people uh, on, of the earth, kulu mimma fil ardi, eat of that which is on the earth, that is halal, lawful, and that is pure. Halal and pure. So, our, it looks like right now, we're still in the process of trying to figure out our halal. We don't have that sorted out yet. But the next level, which we should be focusing on at the same time, is inshallah also how pure that meat is that we get. And I know it's a challenge, but both of these things should be considered. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then interestingly just follows that up with saying, وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا خُطُوَاتِ shaytan." Do not adhere to the steps of the shaytan. Do not follow in the footsteps of the shaytan. Footsteps of the shaytan refers to you see, to get anywhere, to a destination, to an objective, to reach a goal, you need to take footsteps. You need to take steps. You don't just reach there. And you can only get to your destination if you take the first step. So there's a series of steps that you take to get to a destination. Shaitan's focus is to take us to where we don't want to go. But he can't just take us and fling us into that. He takes us by steps. And it's quite amazing how influential, how detrimental rather, you know, from a negative perspective, our food can be for our spiritual states of the acceptance of our dua, of how close we can feel to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with something haram rumbling around in our body. So Allah, Allah says, do not follow in the footsteps of the shaitan because he is your clear enemy. Then Allah says in Surah Al-Baqarah, again, the first, uh, uh, there's two verses, Surah Al-Baqarah 168, 172. He says, O people who believe, Eat from the pure of what we have granted you. Eat of that which is pure from what we have given you. That means we've given you, there's, it's available to, there's much pure that's available, you just have to seek that out. Where there's a demand, there's going to be a supply. Believe me, where there's a demand, there's going to be a supply. If we're going to be satisfied with eating five baby chickens for 10 pounds, like, you know, five little chickens you get for 10 pounds, that's like crazy. Right? Imagine how those chickens, those little hens or whatever that, that they've been produced, to give them to you for five. Is it six here or five? That's in London. Actually, it's gone to 11 pounds. What is it here? How much do you get your little baby chickens for here? One for seven Sorry? Three for seven pounds. Three for seven. Okay, that's about 11 for five, yeah. Okay, it's about the same. Washkuru lillah. So eat of, the, eat of the pure things that we have granted you and thank Allah if it's He that you worship. Then Allah says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ مَاذَا أُحِلَّ They ask you what is halal for them. Say, أُحِلَّ لَكُمُ الطَّيِّبَاتِ The pure things have been made halal. So one aspect of pure is that which has been ritually, you know, the way Islam wants us to uh, slaughter animals. That's what's important. And one of the reasons why the Christian meat uh, was actually allowed for us, the pure Christian meat, uh, is because, uh, and if you read, there's a book called Ahkamul Dhaba'ih, which Mufti Taqi wrote, uh, and it was produced by 
uh, we, we produced a translation of that uh, published from White Thread Press. You can probably find it on Azhar Academy. It's called Islamic Laws of Animal Slaughter. He's shown in there why we've been allowed in the Quran to eat from the Christians and Jews because they also, uh, for example, the Christians, according to the Corinthians, they're supposed to sacrifice, they're supposed to slaughter the meat from the neck and allow the blood to flow and so on. So it's a very similar process. And likewise with the Jews as well. It's supposed to be a similar process. That's why it was allowed. Not because of the mere fact that because he's a Christian, you can, you can eat it. We don't even give that kind of discretion to a Muslim who claims that he's doing halal unless we've checked it out. So a lot of people, they say, oh, that's Christian meat. Right? They don't know that it's Christian meat because we don't even know where the meat that's found in the supermarket is where it's being slaughtered, who's slaughtering, who's sacrificing, you know, who's cutting it. Nobody knows. It could be an atheist, it could be anybody, it could be a Buddhist, it could be somebody swearing while he's doing like, man, you know, I don't even want to say the words. He could be doing that. How do we know? The fact that we, there's a lot of scholars in other countries, some guy goes from here and says, you know, we've got this meat problem, we don't anymore. Like, alhamdulillah, we have enough halal meat here. But they go, you know, from the West, they go to Arab countries, they ask some of the Arab and other scholars, and they say, oh, you live in a Christian country, then... Christian meat is halal and thus your meat, you can just eat. Just say bismillah before you eat. That's just a really disingenuous way of speaking. Because at the end of the day, I don't think people here even call this a Christian country. I mean, it's a secular country at the end of the day. And who's cutting your meat? God knows best. And then with all of the horse meat scandals and God knows what's coming into the meat. Right? You've got so many problems of that nature. That's why I keep saying HMC for me is at least between me and Allah, I can say, look, I trusted these guys, because they've got ulama within them, they've got a very strict procedure. They could get it wrong. HMC can be wrong. I mean, it's not impossible. They're human beings, just like every one of us. We all make mistakes, right? I made a mistake in my maghrib prayer yesterday. We all make mistakes. They could make mistakes, but they're trying. They're not out there to make mistakes. They're out there to try the best. So if they made a mistake here and there, alhamdulillah, I mean, that's fine. That just shows they're human beings, Right? But at least I know that I'm doing my best. Otherwise, it's very, very difficult. That's why somebody comes and asks me that I'm in an area where I don't have, you know, I'm not sure about the meat. It's very difficult, you know, for an individual to go and have to inquire where you're getting your meat from and this, that and the other. Very difficult. It's just very difficult. That's why we need an organization who does this for us. Something being just halal doesn't mean that it must be sacrificed properly. Properly. Of course, the whole other aspect of it is that it must also come from a halal source. Meaning the money, generally we buy our meat. So the money that we're using to buy our meat must come from a halal source. That is as important, if not more, than the fact that the meat has to be ritually slaughtered. A lot of us sometimes do turn, a, turn our eyes away from that. We're focused on making sure our meat is slaughtered properly with bismillah and all the rest of it but in terms of the source of our income then a lot is left to be desired so that's another important aspect i only have a short time to speak today so we can't go into that much detail but i'm i want to just touch on all of these different issues just so that at least it gives us some food for thought i'm trying to just create thought and discussion in this area we have to re-evaluate according to Umar radiallahu anh there's a, a statement of his that has been recorded by Imam Malik in his Muatta he says that 
Meat has an addiction. Lahu darawa ka darawatil khamr. Just like the just like the addiction or intoxication of alcohol. Meat has a similar effect of an addiction. Are we addicted to meat? Are we addicted to meat is a question we need to ask. And alhamdulillah, in the last year, several people, because I've been speaking about this for the last two years at least, several people have come to me and alhamdulillah, they've said that they have decreased their meat intake. When you can decrease your meat intake in your houses, so that your dals are just dals, they don't have to have a bit of chicken in there. Right? Because I know that if the women say, okay, I'm going to cook some dal today, some lentils today, it's not going to be flavored enough without a bit of meat in there. We need that. You know, people can kind of just, they have a gauge in their mind, they can figure this out. No, it's proper dal. We do a lot of soups, you know, we do Moroccan soups, we do the Harira Moroccan soups, we do Syrian soups, Lebanese soups, and we started doing Turkish soups. And believe me, you need to move away from all of those, you know, subhanAllah, there's just so much to speak about. In, in the normal Asian dish, sisters, give me the average number of masala that you would put in a normal Indian dish, like a normal curry. Just give me an average number of how many masalas you need to put in there. The last time, go on. About seven. I think seven is the minimum. The last time I counted, and I could probably do it here if I had the time, there were about 12 to 15. The more exotic you want it, right? Seven is like at least minimum. You know, your, your ginger and garlic and your cinnamon and your... I mean, let me not even get started, right? Because... Um, it's minimum that much. Now that's wonderful. You know, some of those are actually very healthy things. Like turmeric is actually very good for you. Garlic is actually a natural, a natural antibiotic, right? I haven't had uh, antibiotics for the last 10 years, I would say. Because when I have an issue, I have just a clove of garlic in the morning, crushed, a crushed clove of garlic uh, with some honey. You take that first thing in the morning, and about three or four days, your throat problem, whatever it was, it goes. Alhamdulillah. Bit tawfiq. You know, with the help of Allah. I haven't, you know, I haven't had antibiotics as far as I can remember a long time. And may Allah keep us away from them. Right, because antibiotics, is huge research going on. They're not effective anymore, unfortunately. There's resistance being built towards that. But garlic works all the time. Alhamdulillah. So some of these things do have a benefit, right? There's no doubt about it. But, you know, my question is this. The kind of foods that we're used to eating. And I'm not saying we need to become pasta people because that's a whole different ballgame. Right? But... The way we eat, and I, look, I enjoy my Indian food, right? uh, don't get me wrong, but that's, that, all of that, w- w- the way we eat it, was for a particular climate. Most of the climate from which this comes from, the Asian climate, the Indian subcontinent climate, is a very hot climate. So there's something happening, there's a reaction. It's conducive to that climate. We're in a cold climate, eating foods of a whole hot climate, I don't know if any studies have been done on this, but I've been thinking about this for a while, is just imagine what's going on. Right? Because Allah produces certain things in certain areas. I remember when I went to study in Syria in 1998, and we were looking for ginger, I couldn't find ginger. They just did not have French, uh, fresh ginger. Finally, I found some dried ginger somebody had. It's just not there. They don't, they don't have it. Maybe now they have it. God knows. Right? Globalized world. But these are things that we need to think about. Again, I'm just here to put questions in your mind. Because it's important to think. Something has to change. 
The Prophet said, Anybody, anybody which has been nourished by the haram will not enter paradise. They'll be kept back for a while at least. Because there's haram in there. Duas are not accepted. We learned that from a famous hadith in Sahih Muslim. The Prophet speaks about an individual who's just undertaken a long journey. Now, a person on a long journey, when you're a musafir, you're in an in unstable state. You are closer to Allah because you're in a vulnerable state. So your du'as are accepted, more likely to be accepted than when you're just at home. That's why we tell musafirin, you're in musafir, you're in safar, you know, you're traveling, please make du'a for me. So this is saying that this person, he is disheveled, his hair is disheveled, his clothing is soiled, and he's in a state that's vulnerable. If you saw him, you'd be feeling compassion for him. And Allah has the greatest level of compassion. He puts his hand up and he says, Ya Rabb, Ya Rabb, my Lord, my nourisher. Rabb refers to the one who does tarbiyah, the one who brings us up and gives us stage by stage what we need. He is using the right name for Allah as well. But then the Prophet ﷺ said, Anna yustajabula. Where is he going to get acceptance from? Why? Because he says, Malbasuhu haram. مَطْعَمُهُ haram, مَشْرَبُهُ haram. His, and I translate malbas and mashrab and makkal as the place. Because for those who understand Arabic, this is generally the form of the, the dharf. To show a place from where it comes. As opposed to his food is haram. The place where his food is coming from. The source of his food and drink and clothing is haram. And that could mean the source of the income. The source of how your food is produced. The food itself. Because then it says, He says that separately. He says, His malbas, ma'kal and mashrab. The food place, the drink, and the clothing source is haram and he has been nourished by the haram, how is his dua going to be accepted? Something to think about. That if anybody's dua was going to be accepted, it should have been his because he's in that helpless state. He is in that helpless state. Right, let me just uh, finish off with just mentioning to you a few stories about the benefit of halal. Uh, one of the great righteous salihin of the past, he was asked, بِمَا تَلِينُ الْقُلُوبِ How do hearts gain softness so that we actually feel like worshipping? We feel closer to Allah. Because when you have a hard heart, قُلُوبُهُمْ When the heart is hard, you don't feel like doing anything. You don't feel like praying, you don't feel like... There's so many things you just don't feel like doing. You need heart, uh, hearts to soften so that they get closer to Allah. How do we... Get our hearts to soften. He said, halal," By eating the halal. So haram hardens the heart. Meat is known to harden the heart, even from a cardiological perspective. We're talking about a spiritual perspective. Then Umar ibn al-Khattab, عنه, our second khalif, he said, It is by being scrupulous. By being precautious of that which Allah has made haram 
that your du'as will be accepted and your tasbih will be accepted. Which means without that, maybe our du'as are not being accepted because we're placing a barrier. We're raising our hands. We're asking Allah, we're pleading with Him. We're petitioning Him. But then we've placed a barrier. It's almost like we've got the key lock on our phone and we can't do anything. That's why when you give it to a child, he can't do anything. He's got the phone in his hand, but he can't do anything because there's a lock on the phone. We've placed a lock on our hearts. May Allah allow us to lift it. Sahal ibn Abdullah al-Tustari, one of the great salihin of the past, he says, An-Najatu fi thalatha. Success, meaning success of the hereafter. Winning this game with Allah, winning the world, winning the akhirah. Three ways, with three things. Aklul halal, eating the halal comes first because that's what we're nourished by. That's what's going to give us enough energy to make our ibadah. You don't feel like praying, you have a cup of tea, you eat something, you, you've got enough energy to get up. You've come home from work, you're tired. But you have to pray your salat. Let me have a cup of tea, get a bit refreshed, let me pray. Aklul halal, ada'ul fara'id. Number two, fulfilling the obligations. Minimally, at least fulfilling the obligations. Do not miss your prayers. If you miss them, make them up. And number three, iqtida bin Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Following the Prophet sallallahu in everything that he wants from us. And that is also cutting out the meat. Just because meat is available doesn't mean you have to indulge. Just because it's halal doesn't mean you have to eat it every day. It's halal. So many things are halal. We don't do them all the time. It's become a habit. Uh, Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, most of you have heard of Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, rahimahullah. The reason he gets to such a high status, one of his, one of the stories, uh, sorry, one of the people of his time is relating that his father, whose name was Mubarak, I mean, that's a wonderful name. Mubarak means the blessed one. He was actually a slave that was freed. Then he started working probably for his master in a, he worked for his master in a, uh, in a pomegranate orchard. So he, his, his master had a pomegranate orchard. And that's where he would work. He's been working there for a few years, looking after it, tending to the, the trees and the fruit and so on. And on one occasion, his, uh, his, the boss, the, the owner, comes along with a group of his friends to show them the orchard or whatever it was. He sits down and he, says, he calls him over Mubarak. He calls Mubarak and he says, bring me a few pomegranates. Like, you know, he wants his guests to have a few pomegranates. So he goes and he picks up a few pomegranates and brings them back and gives them to him. And uh, the, the owner opens it up and he finds that, oh, one is bad and one is, uh, 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 is, is sour. He says, what's wrong with you? I've got all of these guests. You can't even bring me, choose for me, pick for me some good pomegranates. He says, no, I just, you know, that's what I know. He says, are you serious that you can't pick a good pomegranate? He says, no, that's what I know. You've never eaten a pomegranate from here. He says, no, I've never eaten a pomegranate. He thought he was joking. He thought he was lying. You know, like people who do wrong things, they lie. He asked the neighbors and people around there, have you ever seen this guy eating? He says, we've never seen him eating a pomegranate. He'd been working there for a few years and he'd never eaten a pomegranate because he was never told that you could eat a pomegranate. You know, we go to strawberry picking and we start eating the strawberries even though they tell us that you're not allowed to eat them, right? He, wasn't, he was there for years and he didn't eat a pomegranate. He didn't know how to pick one. He finally, this, this farmer married his only daughter to Mubarak and from them came Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak. Subhanallah. And you get one of the greatest scholars. 
one of the greatest scholars who made such a huge impact on Muslim on Muslim life for the rest of us. He died in uh, he died in I think uh, hundred and um, seven hundred and sixty one or uh, something like that Hijri around the end of the the second century. It's amazing. Hundred seventy one Hijri. He was born in hundred seventeen. He died in hundred seventy one Hijri. Subhanallah. Imam Bukhari's father. Imam Bukhari's name is Muhammad. His father's name is Ismail. Muhammad ibn Ismail. So, Ahmad ibn Hafs, one of the people of that time, Ahmad ibn Hafs, he says that I went to visit Abu Hassan. Abu Hassan is Ismail, the father of Bukhari. I went to visit him on his deathbed. He was on his deathbed, he was very sick. And I heard him saying that La a'lamu min mali dirhaman min haram. I I don't know of a single penny, dirham, pound, whatever you want to call it, in my entire wealth that is from the haram. In fact, wala dirhaman min shubhatin. I don't even know of a single dirham of doubt. That, 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 I, I don't even know if that's possible today. Okay, maybe completely not haram, but a doubtful dirham. Like, I'm just wondering if that's even possible today. It's so difficult for people. We ask Allah to help us. We ask Allah to help us. So this Ahmed ibn Hafs who's observing this, he says, فَتَسَاغَرَتْ إِلَيَّ نَفْسِي I felt so small in myself when he said that. And I said, وَصَلَاهُ الْآبَاءِ يَنْفَعُ الْأَبْنَاءِ This great righteous status of parents is going to pass benefit to their children. You want our children to be the great Salahuddin's and the Nuruddin Zangis and everybody, then we have to start somewhere. You can't just expect that that's going to happen and hope, you know, it's a lucky dip kind of story. There's a preparation that happens before that. Unfortunately, those stories are not known as much as the great people that they've produced and the stories get left out. Subhanallah. Finally, Yusuf ibn Asbat, another great uh, uh, Salaf of the uh, 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 one of our great people of the past, his name is Yusuf ibn Asbat. He says that you know, when a young man, a, a, a youth, young man, a woman, teenager, 20 years old, they start worship, they become religious and they start worshiping. Shaitan gets perturbed. Shaitan gets perturbed. There are countries in the world where if they find the light is on at Fajr time, that means you must be extremists. This was the case in Tunisia. Tunisians have told me this. They they couldn't put their light on at Fajr time to pray. People under the age of 40 couldn't go to the masjid to pray, otherwise you're an extremist. So Yusuf ibn Absbad said that when a teenager, when a youth starts worshipping, shaitan gets worried. Teenagers shouldn't be doing that. They should be on their phones and they should be out there doing something else. So he tells... Iblis says to his other shayateen, just go and check what he's eating. If they go and find that he is eating the wrong things, meaning not the pure, shaitan says, Iblis says, leave him alone, don't worry about him. He is taken care of. You don't need to, لا تشتغلوا به. You, should, you, don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about him anymore. Because... He will put all of his effort, but فَقَدْ كَفَاكُمْ نَفْسَهُ 
He sufficed you already. You don't need to worry about him. By his haram food, that's just going to mess everything up. That's why I will leave us with one dua which I found to be extremely powerful. It's from the Prophet ﷺ and doesn't work just in this. The dua is, and maybe you can repeat it at least once with me and then inshallah you can memorize it if you don't know it. Allahumma kfini bihalalika an haramik wa aghnini bifadrika amman siwak. What that means is, oh Allah, suffice us with the halal away from the haram. Make halal sufficient for us. So we don't even have to look at the haram. And make us independent with your grace from anybody but you. So we don't have to put our hands in front of anybody. We don't have to feel obliged to anybody else except you. And you know what? This not only... Ulama generally mention that this dua is good when you want to pay a debt off. You know when you've got a big debt on your uh, big loan or something. You need to pay it off. They say this will help you. I guess the idea they think is that, you know, so that you don't get involved in haram to try to pay your debt off. You know, you don't try to make some easy money by selling uh, uh, unsavory uh, substances or whatever. But I have found this to be benefit in many, many things. Because the meaning. If you feel that you are getting attracted to the wrong thing, a wrong haram. Like let's just say there's a, a guy at university who's just, you know, the nafs, the shaitan is trying to get him into an unlawful relationship. Right, you know, we've got a young girl who's just unfortunately getting into the getting a feeling, attraction to the wrong things. Read this dua. It works where there's a choice of good or bad. Oh Allah, suffice me with the halal against the haram. Make me happy with this because that's generally what the issue is. Should I go to the prayer or should I go and just play with my friends? Or should I just go out? Oh Allah, suffice me with the halal over the haram. Very powerful dua. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us all. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow the halal and the pure to be available to us. But that has to happen through effort. So we ask Allah that Allah give us the ability to work hard. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all of those in the field, the individuals, the organizations that are working hard to do this. Despite challenges day in and day out, I know some of the challenges that these organizations have to go through purely for the sake. It's not money-making organizations. A lot of these are non-profit. And I really think we need to help them as much as possible. They can make mistakes, but mashallah, the great service that they provide, may Allah allow that to continue. And may Allah allow them to go from strength to strength.